Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Binance Podcast. My name is Weijo. I'm the Chief Financial Officer for Binance. So, what I want to do with this show is to spend time talking to specialists, entrepreneurs, scholars, influencers, basically leading people from a variety of industries. Hopefully, through these conversations, we can share insights on how blockchain is changing not just these different industries, but also in changing the world. Here's a quick disclaimer: all opinions expressed by our host and our guests on this podcast are merely their own opinions. They do not imply any endorsements or opinions of their companies. You should not take these opinions as specific investment advice, as you will be solely responsible for your own investment. Hey everybody, this is we finally back with another episode of the Binance Podcast. We're gonna do for the next couple of episodes is actually, given that there's a lot of our everyone, you know, more than like sixty, seventy percent of the world is gonna is under quarantine. We're actually gonna produce um, some a lot of content that has uh, tangential uh, ties to sort of the coronavirus that's going around, the COVID nineteen virus, and uh, how it ties back into sort of each of the guests uh, that we have on. And today, I'm really excited to have Carol. Carol Yin. Carol, why don't you introduce yourself to our audience? Because I think you're relatively, you know, known within the Twitter community、uh, with your coverage of China, and then sort of, but maybe sort of, maybe you can give a little bit about、uh, your background, and then we can、uh, get started from there. Sounds good. So, hello everyone.、Uh, my name is Carol. I right now tweet about COVID mostly on Twitter and. I host a podcast called Analyze Asia. Some of you might have heard it, and then I also make videos for Radii China, and、um, you might have seen、uh, maybe one or two of the videos if you follow China and if you follow COVID on Twitter. What's your Twitter handle, just so people know? My Twitter handle is my English name, which is Carol, and then my Chinese name, which is spelled Y U J I A Yu Jia, and my last name, which is Yin Y I N. It's a bit of a long one, but I think if you just search Carol Yin Y I N, my account should come up. Great, yeah.、Um, so I am Chinese Canadian. I was first born in China and then immigrated to Toronto with my parents at the age of ten. Did my undergrad, my master's in Canada, and then returned to China afterwards, and have been working in media as well uh, as uh, working as a freelance interpreter for the past two years. And where are you physically based? Because it's it's a little bit weird for me to ask that, given that when people ask you where am I physically based, I'm just like I'm everywhere. But I think at least sort of during the last few months. <laughs> During the last few months, or at least since last December, I've been mostly in Shanghai, and especially、mm-hmm. during the quarantine when China was really under mandatory, you know, self quarantine at home. During that period, I was mostly in Shanghai, but I also, because my extended family, they're in a city called Wuxi, which is about a fifty minute bullet train ride away. So I also did a little bit of traveling between these two cities. And how did you end up in China? From、uh, I guess you're from China, and then you went to Toronto, and then you ended up back in China. What was, what、right. was that process? So ever since I left China as a child, I would come back to visit. You know, every a couple of years, mostly 
during summer vacation. I'm sure a lot of, you know, first or second generation, like Chinese Americans or Chinese Canadians or Chinese Australians, I don't know, they experienced the same thing. And with my own eyes, I just saw my own little city, Wuxi, change so rapidly. Every time I come back, it's like a, it's like a different place. And I was very much intrigued because those of you who know Toronto, mm-hmm. um, it doesn't change that much. And so ever since I was probably in high school, I had the desire to come back and live and work in China to really, you know, experience China beyond just a summer vacation. So that's mm-hmm. why I um, ended up here. And also I did my master's in conference interpreting, actually. So that's interpreting mm-hmm. between English and Mandarin Chinese, either simultaneously or consecutively. And I would be able to do more work in China as well. Did you work in Toronto a little bit after your after you got your master's, or did you work direct went back to China directly? I went back to China directly, actually, mm-hmm. and yeah. and at that time, I didn't actually want to work as an interpreter mm-hmm. um, because freelancing you got to have a network first, right? So mm-hmm. at that time, I was like, okay, I got to find a job. So I thought to myself, what is an industry that if I gained some work experience in, that if I wanted to return to North America in the future, I would still have a very valuable story uh, mm-hmm. experience to tell. You know, so that's why I uh, got into tech. So mm-hmm. I, I worked a little bit at a. V- VR, um, AR startup. And then mm-hmm. I started my journey in media. I was working mm-hmm. at Penn Daily for a while, um, helped to fund the Tech Bus China podcast. I was the mm-hmm. editor for that podcast until uh, I left Penn Daily. Um, started making a lot of videos. I would go to you know conferences like the Alibaba Cloud um, conference, you know, Baidu, um, AI, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and then and then that's when I started also then started to freelance and I mm-hmm. do a lot of work in tech and with, uh, for example, investment firms looking mm-hmm. into Chinese tech companies, um, et cetera. Yeah. And can you tell us a little bit about Radeye and Analyze Asia? Because I think some of our listeners probably don't know those two organizations or what they do. Sure. So Analyze Asia uh, is uh, was originally founded in Singapore by mm-hmm. Bernard Young, who now works for Amazon Cloud Services. And mm-hmm. uh, we do a lot of interviews. We don't we cover all of Asia, so not just mm-hmm. China. We do a lot of interviews with, for example, funders, um, investors, people who work in tech or in media or in investment fields. And mm-hmm. we focus on China is one of our focuses. Also so Singapore, also other parts of South Southeast Asia as well. And we mm-hmm. have episodes coming out pretty much um, once every two weeks. My latest episode that was released was my interview with Ray Ma, who, uh, who, hosts, who co-hosts the Tech Buzz China um, mm-hmm. podcast. And we talked about uh, Bilibili, which is a Chinese uh, video platform. Mm-hmm. And then I think the one before that was talking about COVID because that's okay. yep. really what everyone wants mm-hmm. to know about right now. And Radii. Radii was founded by uh, Brian Wong, who is an executive at Alibaba Group. And uh, Radii covers a lot of the more non-political stuff about China. So mm-hmm. we cover uh, culture, we cover music, we cover lifestyle, we cover really what's happening, um, what the millennials will be interested in, what people who are born in the 90s or the 2000s uh, in China actually care about. Mm-hmm. My background's a little bit similar. I think some of the listeners know that I was born in China as well. I was actually from Nanjing. 
And then- uh, Oh, we're fairly of, close. Uh, fairly close. I don't know if you know uh, Joyce. Joyce Young, she and I actually went to the same elementary school in China. What? We went, so so we, we actually found that out during sort of our conversation just for, for the podcast. And, That's so but, but cool. I think, that's then, super uh, cool because I, on Analyze Asia, we actually had Joyce come mm-hmm. on and talk about Binance. <laughs> that's interesting. Yeah, yeah, no, I think she's, she covers it quite well. Although I think, um, and I think, but one of the things that's really, really interesting, I find is that people sort of with our similar backgrounds that we're actually in industries or in positions where we actually have good grasp of information and culture, both within China and within the U.S., what makes that really unique then is basically you can see a lot of businesses, um, but especially I think within the tech and the information and then uh, tech and the investing industry that take advantage of that information arbitrage, I like to call it, or cultural arbitrage um, between China and the U.S. And that's probably kind of especially true within the crypto. I think that's where Joyce's you know, global coin, I think you should call it, actually take has done a really good job in terms of bringing. And it seems like from your work and you're actually bringing a lot of creating uh, a lot of content uh, from China. Uh, I would assume the content is mostly in English for a Western audience to basically, you know, get for, to give them a better understanding of what's going on on the ground in China, what's hot, uh, what's popular, what's real, what's fake. That's right. You mentioned you started uh, covering it or putting it out on Twitter. Has that response on Twitter shifted um, over time? Mm -hmm. So, um, like I said, when I first started, I didn't really have an audience because I barely used Twitter before January. Um, Mm -hmm. I would occasionally go on and share tweets about the newest episode for Analyze Asia. But other than that, I never really saw the point of Twitter, I guess. Mm -hmm. I'm more Mm -hmm. of like an Instagram kind of a person. And (laughs) um, (laughs) so at the end of January, when all these news, like every day, there were just so much, uh, every hour almost, I check wave Mm -hmm. one, something else, a new policy or this uh, new alert, et cetera. Um, More patients getting diagnosed. There were just so much information. So I just started tweeting out information that I personally felt like the world should know. And in the beginning, um, I had, at that point, not even 100 followers on Twitter. Mm -hmm. But I just kept on going at it because, like I said, it was a way for me to share, like, relieve my anxiety, to ease my anxiety. It's like, oh, Mm -hmm. I'm I'm doing something useful. I'm sharing information uh, with the world kind of thing. And... um, now I have uh, a bit over 4,000. I mean, it's not a lot, but I still try to provide useful information and I can see a lot of people, you know, engaging with me. And there was a period in time when I felt a little bit overwhelmed. And I actually also the, tweeted about that. And I actually mm-hmm. got a lot of uh, personal messages from people telling me that, hey, thanks to all the uh, tweets that you've been sending out over the past few months, um, I've, you know, been very aware of the situation and that has really helped me to prepare for what I'm going through now. I got mm-hmm. quite a few messages like that. And that really made me feel like all these t- all the time that I put into, you know, sharing all these um, information was really worth it. Right. Because mm-hmm. at the end of the day, it's it really is about people's like welfare, their their livelihood, their well-being, et cetera. Mm-hmm. How long were you stuck at home? Because I've had friends who are basically in Beijing and Shanghai and, and Guangzhou and Shenzhen that basically like two weeks ago was the first time they've been out of their house for about two months. 
Right. So I was already in Wuxi um, with my grandparents when uh, news from Wuhan broke out. So mm-hmm. I was in Wuxi for a while and then I went back to Shanghai. But when I was in Shanghai, I was pretty much home for, um, I would say, a bit over a month, but not mm-hmm. necessarily up to two months. And within that time, I occasionally went out maybe like once or twice twice out of the compound to make radio, uh, to make videos for radii. Like I did a street mm-hmm. interview, interviewing, you know, people uh, who deliver your food and also sanitary workers on the street to um, get their so, take. On. So how did they enforce the quarantine? Then? Like, did you feel like were there police people on the street trying to make you stay at home? Or is it no. still mo- mostly voluntary kind of people staying at home? Yeah, it was mostly voluntary unless you came into contact with somebody who was already diagnosed. Then in that mm. case, you're under like a mandatory one. But otherwise, mm. really, it was voluntary. And most people stayed at home willingly. I mean, there were some measures to make you know, visiting other people difficult. For example, mm. most people had to show this... Um, like pass to enter or leave the compound, the apartment compound that they lived in. And so if you didn't actually have one because you don't live there, then technically you can't go in. Right. Who, so they, who, who so the security guards, uh, sorry. Um, um, the person issuing it, I'm not a hundred percent sure, but I believe it's the neighborhood committee. So Jewett neighborhood okay. committee would come a door to door. They would knock, they would ask you how many people live in your home. And then mm-hmm. I said two. So then they gave me two passes, but then there were no names. However, recently I saw friends posting um, their passes on Instagram and I have a friend mm-hmm. who lives in Beijing. He had his photo on his pass. So that's mm-hmm. a lot more strict than how mm-hmm. things were uh, the way I experienced excuse me, how, more strict than how I experienced it in Shanghai. So I think one point also is all the all the you know stories that I'm telling is not representative of China, right? It's just representative of my own personal experience, which I think a lot of people don't get when they see my videos or when they see my tweets. They're like, oh my God, look what's happening in China. And they feel like, oh, this entire country is just under like this one, one uh, rule or something. Whereas it's really different municipalities are in Forcing different rules, sometimes so actually, different so districts. So, so it's not like there's one central method that the entire country followed. It sounds like the the country came up with like a general guideline, and it's basically left up to each cities, even within the cities, different districts in terms of how to interpret and enforce some of these rules. That's right. I remember when the different provinces first um, basically announced that they were in. I think level one alert stage. I can't remember what it was called, but like uh, the highest level of alert, right? Different provinces called or made that status claim at different mm-hmm. times because it really depends on how many people in your province are being infected, right? And so mm-hmm. that's why the measures are a little bit different. The strictness of the quarantine measures basically is kind of semi-dependent on sort of the affected rates in your in your own like respective cities then. Exactly. So, uh, of course, Hubei had uh, the 
most strict kind of measures. Mm-hmm. But there are other cities outside of Hubei as well. For example, I know cities, mm-hmm. certain cities in Zhejiang had a mm-hmm. very high infection rate, high for uh, Chinese standards, not not for U.S. standards these days. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. High, and then uh, for example, uh, the city of Wenzhou. At I don't know if they still they probably don't have this anymore. But for a certain period in time, there was a rule that so for every apartment so for every household you would have the chance to send one person out of the home every two days to buy essentials so that is a rule that's fairly strict that i haven't um you know it's in i know a certain hubei cities for example like huanggang also enforced mm-hmm. this rule um mm-hmm. but it's definitely not prevalent no, I'm sorry, but overall in Shanghai, it's sort of like it seems a little bit more lax than as compared to some of the more heavily affected cities. Then, I would say so. It, I think mm-hmm. Shanghai was even more lax than Wuxi. Um, mm-hmm. Wuxi had in total probably less than. Actually, I, I can't comment. I don't remember how mm-hmm. many in total it had, mm-hmm. but it was a very low percentage of the population, and everybody recovered. No one died, um, according to official stats. And all <laughs> restaurants were closed. All restaurants mm-hmm. were closed for two months. Mm-hmm. which is pretty drastic. But in Shanghai, um, I know a lot of malls were did remain open um, and a mm-hmm. lot of hot pot restaurants remain open because I searched mm-hmm. for them <laughs> during uh-huh. the quarantine. Uh-huh. Like I can see on Dianping that uh, they did take different quarantine measures that they mm-hmm. advertised about, but they remain open. You know, so it's different, really. This is the first week of April now. So compared to... The last week of January is, I think, when when the quarantine measure starts. When did you start seeing Shanghai at least um, start opening up more? Yeah, I can't um, give like an exact date, but I mm-hmm. definitely felt, um, uh, you know, people started to going to work more. I remember mm-hmm. it was um, beginning or mid March. Okay. You know. Um, I think it was at the end of February that a lot of people already started to go into their office for work, even if it was just one to two days per week instead of like mm-hmm. five days, you know. Mm-hmm. But um, in March, I started going to Radii's office and we work out of a WeWork. And I can mm-hmm. see that there are a lot of, not a lot of people, but definitely different offices have opened within um, the WeWork uh, mm-hmm. office space. What's, what's the mask rate that you see? <laughs> Oh, 100%. It's funny. People definitely have asked me this and I have Mm -hmm. always been like baffled by the argument and the attitude difference as well. It it was like, what? Um, Because in China now, it's still pretty much 100% until probably an official word is out saying that, oh, you don't have to wear masks anymore. Because Mm -hmm. if you want to go inside subways, if you want to go on buses, any public spaces uh, where there are like security guards in front, you have to have your mask on and uh, most of the time you need to get your temperature checks still Mm -hmm. this is 100% mandatory you mentioned that you kind of have been traveling a little bit in between Shanghai and Wuxi is travel open in China now or at least what level is openness in terms of travel and what level how many people like are there do you see a lot of people traveling yeah um so I because this weekend is tomb sweeping um Holiday, not holiday, Tomb Sweeping Day. It was mm-hmm. on Saturday and it's a long weekend. So it's a Monday, but uh, we have it off. So I actually am back in, uh, uh, I'm back in Wuxi again. And this time around, when I took the train, I first took it from Shanghai to Hangzhou and then from Hangzhou to Yixing Station. 
it was like all the all the seats were full. <laughs> but when I traveled, when I made one of the videos that kind of went viral on Twitter about you know my movements being tracked, I made that video I believe sometime in February, and mm-hmm. um, there were pretty much no one around me when I uh, was traveling. So mm-hmm. I think things activities are really um, have. I feel like resume to almost normal. Um, mm-hmm. People were, for example, I heard people complaining about how they were experiencing traffic jams on highways because giant uh, highways are still toll free. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, if so during Qingming weekend, a lot of people are traveling, you know, go, visiting relatives, going to places, and there are like traffic jams. So it seems like things are starting to return to normal, which is basically becoming crowded again. <laughs> That's right, and I don't know if you've seen that uh, post about uh, Huangshan. <laughs> uh, I saw that. We had two hundred thousand people, or whatever number of people. I'm physically currently in Singapore now, and then uh, the numbers in Singapore from February is actually relatively low, like ten twenty a day. Um, but then the last two weeks, sort of like a second wave, they call it, is coming, and they have actually had over a hundred yesterday from the terms of diagnosed cases. So the country of so Singapore is actually going to go on to sort of lockdown starting tomorrow. Oh wow! Uh, I think they've controlled it better than people have been. And then prior to that, people have been living normal. Like restaurants are open, bars are open, uh, people are like chilling on beaches. So they haven't really suffered the quarant the people as much. But I do think that my advice is basically stay home. <laughs> it's pretty. It's like I think I think the only way to sort of spread this to keep that from spreading is actually just stay home. You know, mandatory is mandatory. But I think it's like you know, if people can do it more voluntarily, you know, like wearing masks. And minimizing, I guess, you know, leaving, minimizing social contact. Uh, ultimately, you know, things things can return to normal. Uh, yeah, uh, I didn't go out to eat at a restaurant mm, for mm. a good two months. You mm-hmm. know, just everything was takeout, and so during that two months, I saw like nobody other than my boyfriend mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Uh, in person. Yeah, it was it was pretty wild. But, you know, it's not it's not good on your sanity. But, you know, Google Hangout, all these other ways of socializing uh, will mm-hmm. keep you sane, hopefully. Mm-hmm. But um, I know I've said a lot about how things are returning to normal. But I just want to say that um, the Chinese government is still taking a very, like, precautious um, approach. Um, you know, none of the movie theaters have opened, for example. Mm-hmm. Like, they opened for a few days, and then uh, they were asked to all close again. And then schools haven't resumed yet. I was looking at different schedules of when classes were going to start. I think they are asking, you know, the graduating class, some of the graduating class to start classes because it's a very important year for them. But other than, you know, people who are in their last year of high school, most schools will not open till uh, mid to end of april or till may mm-hmm. and i think um in beijing that might even mean like potentially um schools won't be open for this semester actually and then you know china has closed their border um, because there were so many um cases coming in like inbound cases most of the new cases are inbound cases and so china is still very being very very careful even though the number of new cases every day has been very low why do you see like big sort of numbers then right in asian countries versus say specifically western countries like the number of cases now because if you look at asian countries south korea i think had a huge issue for a while but then they were able to handle it and some of the southeast asian countries I think has less of an issue versus sort of the Western countries. Is it a numbers game or is it just sort of like a culture thing? 
Um, I think you've probably, you've definitely seen the mask and no mask grouping, mm-hmm. um, you know, mm-hmm. on, on the graph, you know what I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. I think that definitely has something to do with it. And then also because the proximity to China, right? So when mm-hmm. things started happening in China, because these countries were physically so much closer, so I think they were scared. So they took a lot of measures early on. For example, Hong Kong was very timely with a lot of their responses. In fact, it was before January when they, they already sent experts, you know, to um, China and they had warnings to travelers about going to Wuhan, et cetera. So country, mm-hmm. so not necessarily, uh, regions that are close to China were very, very careful um, because of the proximity to China. Whereas mm-hmm. I think if you physically were located in, say, Canada or the U.S., you feel like, oh, it's on the other side of the world. Like, it's not going to impact me. It was more like, oh, I'm watching what's happening, what's unfolding in China, not taking into the consideration that, hey, this was this is going to come very soon, like to here, you know, where mm-hmm. I am. And so even though, you know, technically China did not like what what was happening in China should have served as a, a huge warning sign. Um, but I don't think a lot of the Western countries took it as seriously as they should mm. have. Yeah. And then also, yeah. of course, there is a pro- there's there's no doubt that there is underreporting. We just don't know by how much. Um, mm-hmm. So I can't really comment uh, on mm-hmm. the numbers. Yeah. Okay. I think one of the scariest thing about the virus is actually you can have it and you don't know it and you're symptom free for like right. a period of time. And that's, that's right. the scariest. So, and then you, so you don't even know that you've had it until you get symptoms. And I think I've read somewhere that people can actually just stay symptom free, but then those are the, the quote unquote super transmitters that can actually infect uh, a lot more people. Um, right. And, and uh, so sometimes when people are like, oh, I'm not sick. Why do I need to go under quarantine? Why should I wear a mask? Why should I do this? Why should I do that when I don't show symptoms? Like that's not being very responsible to the people around you and to your society. Right. Mm-hmm. And and I think what um, people in Asia have done that was a responsible thing is just wear a mask. Right. When you go out and just try not to go out uh, as much as as much as possible and then try to stay home. Right. Mm-hmm. I think it's the greater um, the the. The, the sense of a, a responsibility, right, to, um, you know, towards a society almost. Mm-hmm. Anything that's sort of the, the other topical item that I kind of want to discuss with you, I'm not sure if you had a chance to talk to people about it, is actually the Luckin Coffee scandal, which has sort of hit the wire last, last week. Have you been following that at all or no? I have been following it a little bit, um, especially because there are a lot of really good um, reports coming out from China, Mm -hmm. but only in Chinese. And I haven't Mm -hmm. seen any good articles or anything in English, actually. Mm -hmm. So I tweeted out a few articles that I thought were very insightful, gave a lot more details than what is um, being reported in mainstream media, basically. Mm -hmm. Like last night, um, I read an article that was produced by Ran Caijing. So it's a Mm -hmm. new platform informed by um, a, I can't remember the name of the, the finance group, and then Taichi uh, mm-hmm. Media, um, a mm-hmm. pretty big Chinese um, news agency. And they did an exclusive interview with five employees of Luckin Coffee. Four of mm-hmm. them are still present employees. Just talking mm-hmm. about you know, certain like warning, not warning signs, but things that they felt were very fishy during their time there. And these people held mm-hmm. different posts. You know, some were uh, like a, a store manager and I think uh, just different posts. And they shared a lot of very interesting details. Mm-hmm. Um, 
Yeah. Yeah. There have been a lot of writings uh, in Chinese about luck and coffee, which I feel like I know a lot of people, uh, for example, in the US would really benefit from reading more um, Mm -hmm. of these reports. And this is like you said, where, you know, language arbitrage or cultural arbitrage comes in. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's the classic case of things did not smell right from day one, but I think people were chasing their money that they completely forgot to sort of uh, to try to acknowledge maybe the, there's there's something fishy or the, the truth is not 100%. And, right. Uh, and, and I feel like that kind of exists uh, within sort of the crypto community as well, that sometimes things are so good to be true that you're like, it's probably not true, but the price is rising. I'm going to see if I can take advantage of the situation. <laughs> right. But it's, it's, yeah. hard, it's hard, right? If, you know, mm-hmm. these are investors who live in the U.S., they've never had the chance to come to China to try a cup of luck and coffee to actually, you know, sit at the store or see the traffic, talk mm-hmm. to locals who actually talk to locals who are the real customers of this mm-hmm. business, then it's it's a little bit difficult for them to collect all the warning signs or very concrete evidence against um, what they are impulsed to do, for example. Mm-hmm. And then from your perspective, then, do you feel uh, you have an obligation then to sort of to bring that, you know, from your position as a, as a, as a media person, right? It, it just makes me like yesterday I was um, last night, actually, I was on Twitter and I saw a lot of um, like, in my opinion, I feel like I, th- these are like some of these fake news that were getting a lot of likes, comments, retweets, etc. And there was so much hate between, you know, West and China. It, it breaks my heart. It just makes me very upset um, reading or just seeing so much animosity between like between both sides, right? It, mm-hmm. it pains me when I read nasty comments towards the US and other parts of the world on Weibo. And it also pains me when I read all these comments towards like China, Chinese people, the Chinese diaspora. And I think it's out of... Um, it's like almost like emotional response for me to want to share more um, positive, more um, objective news or just more information, period. Um, mm-hmm. So people can, you know, use their own judgment just f- so that they can have more um, information to parse through almost or get a more like a spectrum of news, mm-hmm. right? Versus like, oh, you can only hear from state like Chinese state media and everyone automatically almost discredits anything they say, even though, Hey, there might be some uh, truth in the, the, the stuff that they're, they're, they're sharing. And then, um, or just having, you know, New York times, Washington post, et cetera, they have their own biases too. Right. So mm-hmm. it's good to have more independent journalism, independent media, you know, covering different topics, different aspects, um, or even just the same COVID topic from all these different angles. For example, there were a lot of discussions about wet markets, right? And and I don't even think people have been to like Chinese wet market and they don't even know what that means, right? So mm-hmm. um, people, um, a colleague and I from radio, we recently went to a wet market in Shanghai and we, you know, we took our video cameras there so that people can see Hey, when you when you make comments about wet markets and saying that, you know, all of these wet markets should be banned, should be closed down, this is what you're talking about. And most of mm-hmm. these people don't actually know what they're talking about. So they're just your local farmers market. 
That's right. That's right. You know, but, but with like, granted, with you know, meat, um, more like you know, butcher shop is there and other yeah, seafood yeah. and stuff. Yeah. But yeah, it's like your local farmers market. You should tell them that uh, Walmart has been trying to bring the 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 reason why Walmart's been successful in China is they try to bring the wet market experience into a shopping center. Mm, I I can see that honestly. <laughs> I just think that、uh, for media in between China and U.S., I think it's actually going to how do you want to put it? It's going to get more heated, in my opinion. But I think just within that, I think there's going to be a tremendous amount of opportunity to basically because、uh, just because I think the amount of information that's coming all from different industries is is actually going to be all over the place, and there's going to be the need I think to interpret that and to understand that. And hopefully, you know, invest and、uh, and build your business around that. All right. Thanks, everyone, for listening to the Binance podcast, and thank、uh, our guest Carol for joining us to share her experience、uh, dealing with COVID nineteen from Shanghai and Wuxi. And I really hope that for everyone listening to you know stay safe,、uh, stay home,、uh, distance social distance yourself because when you're doing that, you're protecting not just yourself but those around you as well. Take the time to if you're bored, take the time. There are many things you can do online. Uh, you, you can start a Twitter. You can start.、Uh, you can start documenting your life. You can start sharing some of that with your friends. Because、um, I think well, when you do that, you know, by when you by staying busy,、uh, time do, time does pass faster.、Uh, and I think if we all take these precautionary measures, we can slow the spread of the disease. As we've sort of you know learned from with Carol here in Shanghai, at least you know there is. Light at the end of the tunnel, but but it is difficult. So my sincere heart goes out to everyone, and、uh, hope you hope everyone stays safe uh, during these uh, difficult times. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed this interview as as much I did. If you like this show, please share this episode on Twitter, Facebook, Telegram, WeChat, or any other social media platforms. Please don't forget to subscribe to the Binance Podcast, and see you next time.